Hey, Future Hindsight listeners, before we start, I want to shout out The Purple Principle. It's a podcast on the perils of polarization that's generous with insight and discussion, but stingy on spin and dogma. Recent guests include New York Times writer Thomas Edsall and the bulwark publisher Sarah Longwell on turning down our political temperature. And coming up, former Congressman Carlos Corbello discusses indie Hispanic voters and CNN's Michael Smirconish bemoans the lack of moderation in today's media mashup. Visit purpleprinciple.com for episodes, newsletters, book recs, and more. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. In our last episode of 2021, we spoke to Dr. Manuel Pastor at the University of Southern California about solidarity and mutuality. Basically, what we need to do is turn to each other to fulfill the promise of our social contract. And as part of that, he urged us to retake the commons. And it occurred to me that we should really better understand how the commons is experienced in real life so that we can grasp the stakes. To illustrate this lived experience, we uncover how the fracking industry has induced a tragedy of the commons in a community in Pennsylvania, where some members have benefited from leasing their land to gas companies, but where all members are paying the cost of the environmental damage. What's super frustrating about it is that it's the result of what's called the public-private paradox. That's when lawful and private decisions by individuals affect the public sphere. So in this episode, we'll be looking at how the community navigates bearing the brunt of people's private decisions and what the potential consequences are for our democracy. To help us unpack it all, we are revisiting our conversation with Colin Jeralmack. He's professor of sociology and environmental studies at NYU and the author of Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom and Community in an American Town. Let's start with defining what exactly a public-private paradox is and why should we care? There's this conception that there is a sphere of private life that is separate from the public domain. And generally in America, we don't regulate or we are loath to regulate things that are in the private sphere because these are treated as decisions and actions that don't impinge on other people's ability to love who they want to love worship how they want to worship, etc. And so the things that we do tend to regulate are actions and behaviors that enter the public domain, where me doing something can harm your rights, your ability to access opportunities or goods. And so the idea of the public-private paradox is that a lot of decisions and actions that are treated as private are actually public. For instance, driving an SUV versus driving an electric vehicle or versus not driving a vehicle at all, these are treated as private decisions, which are not regulated, but in the aggregate, if every one of us chooses these decisions that are more carbon intensive, we impinge on the public sphere in the form of greenhouse gases, global warming. And this has a direct impact on other people, on their ability to access resources that are limited, like air and water, and also on their life and liberties. A lot of the decisions that we treat as private are actually environmental decisions that impinge on other people's liberty and other people's ability to access scarce resources. And so I make the argument in the end that they ought to be treated as public decisions and ought to be regulated as decisions and actions that impact the public domain. So let's break it down a little bit step by step. 
in terms of the United States, it is a unique country that allows a landowner most of the time to have the rights to both the surface and also subsurface. And in most countries, that's not the case. So that if there is an energy company that wants to drill, you know, a mile under the ground, the nation state would engage directly with the energy company. But in the U.S., you have private citizens engaging in these agreements and selling of these rights to drill underneath. Tell us a little bit how this actually is a private public decision, because I think that's maybe much less obvious in the way that we think about fracking. When we think about fracking and the way that it plays out in this country, I think a lot of people think in the broad scale, there's a political fight between those who support it and those who are against it, which generally maps onto the right and the left. And I think people may have a conception that how fracking proceeds is based on who's winning out in that debate. The individual who owns the land owns it, quote, down to hell, which is where the quote of the book comes from. How fracking plays out is actually a private decision made by thousands of landowners across middle America who on their own are approached by a representative of the energy company and sit down at a kitchen table and make the decision often without talking to anyone else. It's purely their decision to make privately. And so how fracking proceeds is thousands and thousands of people deciding to lease their mineral rights individually. And the aggregate effect of this is planetary wise, it's increasing global warming, more immediate in the community, which you You've already alluded to, Mila, is that I make this decision and it appears as if it is just my decision alone because property rights are so strong that they allow me to make that decision. But it is impossible for me to have my land developed for oil and gas drilling without it impacting you. I mean, the worst impacts which do happen sometimes are contamination of water. And so I can contaminate your groundwater. But even if that doesn't happen, there are so many other things. To frack one well one time takes hundreds of big rig tankers driving along small roads, lining up in caravans. They pockmark the roads with potholes. Uh, Residents may get notices in their mailbox that they can't exit or enter their driveway for a certain number of hours while the trucks are coming and going. There's a lot of noise and light pollution from drilling. After they've fracked a well, it's often not hooked up to a pipeline right away. So then they would burn off the gas and it lights up the entire valley or area. And it's so loud, this burning off of this, this gas, this huge flame, that it's like a jet engine and residents can't sleep. So I'm your next door neighbor. You do these things. My capacity to enjoy my property rights, my quality of life is degraded. Sometimes even literally my property, if there's contamination, is impacted. This externality spills over from your decision. And so it's actually not a private decision. And that's how this is a sort of perfect example of the public-private paradox, because legally it is your private decision, but I'm arguing it ought not be, because it actually infringes on my ability to enjoy life, liberty, and property. Right. I think this is the part that is so astounding, is that we don't think about that at all. We mostly think about the larger issues, fracking, not fracking, should we do it, should we not? But really, (laughs) it's much more every day, especially in these communities. What I found really interesting among them is that they really felt, though, that they were also guardians of the land. Yes. How do you square those two together or how did they explain it to you? I don't want to paint a broad picture that says everyone is the same. The folks of Lycoming County, which is where I did this research in Pennsylvania, 
they are staunchly, on the whole, staunchly conservative. All the folks who own land and are leasing it live outside the city and are conservative, and I would say even libertarian-leaning. They very much staunchly defended property rights and believed in self-reliance. They uh, did not want the government involved in their lives in any way, which meant de facto any form of environmental regulation was bad because environmental regulation meant government regulation over individual choices and over land use. So many of them are living on pieces of land, sometimes slivers that are descended from an ancestral family farm. For many folks, the land was kindred to them. It wasn't just the deed that made them own it. It was the roads and sometimes mountains named after their family. You might think then that they would want to protect it and that fracking would be seen as a threat. But for a number of folks, it was quite the opposite. There was this anxiety that the land would be lost on their watch. And they were worried that their kids, grandkids would not want to continue living there or that they wouldn't even be able to hold on to it. A lot of folks are what people call land poor. They own this property, but even paying the property taxes is a burden. They saw leasing as a lifeline, as the possibility of sustaining this property for future generations and making it not a burden for their children and their grandchildren, even if it meant sacrificing some of it with, for instance, well paths or access roads. What surprised me is that most people didn't sell the land outright and moved. Maybe because there's an asymmetry of information. <laughs> they don't know everything that the energy company knows. Mm -hmm. And they also don't fully understand the intentions of yes. the energy company. I should say that in this region, there's been a long history of occasional drilling of shallow vertical wells. When the oil and gas companies started coming around in 2006, 7, 8, offering to lease them. A lot of folks had actually had leases in the past and nothing ever came of it. For some folks, it was just, it's time to renew your lease. And so the oil and gas company didn't really talk a lot about what they were doing was this new process of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, which is far more disruptive than traditional vertical wells. And so that was sort of the first stealth move, if you will, that the oil and gas companies made. A lot of property owners did not have a sense of how much more disruptive this was going to be. And also, the emphasis on the horizontal drilling part of it along the shale layer more than a mile underneath the surface, that seemed like there's not going to be that much surface disturbance. I don't think it would have occurred to anybody to sell their property and move. I think they saw this as, uh, this isn't really going to impact me that much and it's giving me some money precisely so that I can hold on to my property. You talk about procedural injustice and how lessers really often just make tragic decisions, um, you know, trying to make the best of a situation with inaccurate and incomplete information and or because their neighbor has already sold. So then if mm -hmm. you live on a small land, you might as well get a little bit of money. So talk a little bit, if you could, about procedural injustice and how it takes advantage of the lesser. The idea of procedural justice is that having a say in decisions that affect you is just as important as the outcome. People can feel a sense that they have been taken advantage of if they don't have a say in the process. You know, a lot of these folks either signed the lease right away because they thought it was just like leases they had signed before. Some of them did take the lease to a lawyer, but this was so new that local lawyers didn't really understand what they were reading and understand how much autonomy over the land was being given away. I'll tell the story about George Hagemard. So he signed this lease. They put this well pad. He has no say in where it's put. So they put this large, almost five acre pad, and then they put a driveway down. He didn't really 
understand that there would be a new driveway through his property. And he had hoped and tried to ask them, you know, if you put the driveway on the other side of this tree line, he wouldn't have to look at it. The trucks wouldn't go right by his house. Nope, they did it the way they wanted to do it. Once they were drilling on his property, there was a security guard shack stationed at the entrance of his driveway that actually put up a stop sign to tell him that he couldn't enter his property. And it makes sense from a safety perspective, but he had never imagined that his own access to his property would be limited. The company put a surveillance camera on his property that he did not even know was there. And when he walked across the well pad, which was in his backyard, the next day, the gas company called him and said, we have video footage of you walking across your well pad and you're going to be arrested if you do it again. That's trespassing because we are leasing that. He found out that they were going to be withdrawing thousands of gallons of water from the creek that runs through his house when he saw an ad in the classified section of the newspaper, which the company was required to place. And it turned out when I dug into it, all of these things were allowed in his lease with really vague language. So George actually became much more skeptical and sour on the industry, even though he was a big supporter of it. And it was precisely because of this procedural injustice that he did not understand that the lease basically gave carte blanche to the petroleum company to do almost anything they wanted to do. Another thing he didn't understand, and a lot of lessers had the same thing, they signed a five-year lease but five-year leases are only five years if nothing happens at the end of it. There's this clause, again, in legal jargon, buried in the lease often, that if they drill on your property, then the lease is in perpetuity until they have extracted all of the resource, which could potentially mean a century of this on your property because these wells can be productive for decades and there are layers of shale underneath the Marcellus. He thought it was five years and then they would be done at the end of that. So this is tragic irony because as I mentioned to you before, a lot of the folks, one of the thing they valued most was their land sovereignty. They liked living in a very rural area, you know, part of Northern Appalachia where they could do as they pleased. And to find out that in the end, you've become a tenant on your own property in a sense is probably the greatest injustice of all for them. It's really heartbreaking, actually. So I want to go back to the social contract, because now we have an idea about what the relationship is between neighbors and their relationship with a corporation, with the oil company. Mm -hmm. So in what way is the social contract here compromised within the community and with the people that they do business with? Because at the end of the day, we have to live with them together, too. One of the things I try to do is take this idea of the social contract and relate it to people who lived here, their sense of the social contract. And perhaps the easiest way to do that is, uh, you know, when folks colloquially refer to their attitude as live and let live, that basically I do what I want, you do what you want, but I do ensure that in me living my life, I don't take away your ability to live and enjoy your life. So how that relates to the social contract is that it starts from the premise that people inherently value freedom and their autonomy, but they're willing to sacrifice some autonomy, but only to the extent that they get guarantees that others cannot take away their autonomy. Fracking violates this live and let live clause because if I lease my land, And then there's all this development and there's all this truck traffic and the roads are getting beat up and there's flaring. And occasionally, as I saw, sometimes there is explosive levels of methane that wind up in people's water. I'm not letting you live anymore. I am certainly infringing on your capacity to enjoy your property, compromising the value of your property and 
we can even say if you want to get to like the life, liberty, happiness clause, there have been a lot of different public health issues linked to fracking. And what's unfortunate is I don't blame individuals for this. I don't blame people who lease their land because, by the way, almost every landowner in this area leased their land. What I blame is the almost utter lack of serious regulation that would account for these externalities. The lack of a regulatory structure, the staunch protection of property rights basically puts the onus on every individual to make a decision that is a balance between what's good for them and what's good for their neighbors. And, you know, property rights make it seem like this decision is purely a private decision. So what is the kind of regulation that you like? I mean, you do mention that there are zoning restrictions here and there, but really they're not strong enough. But what kind of regulation would have saved the worst abuses Mm -hmm. in this community? I have two answers. I mean, one is the ideal and one is the more realistic. In an ideal world, fracking wouldn't exist. In an even less ideal but seemingly idealistic world compared to what we have now, fracking would be regulated at the federal level. I mean, the so-called Halliburton loophole that Dick Cheney, when he was vice president, who was the former CEO of Halliburton Oil Field Services, basically took away the jurisdiction of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate fracking in a way that they do a lot of other industries that pollute. Now, what I do say even more locally that could have been done is most municipalities in so-called home rule states, of which Pennsylvania is one, can control land development through zoning. To balance property rights and economic development with scarce public goods. So for instance, they may zone an area residential and then say that within a residential area, you cannot have certain industrial uses. If we had had something like that, that could have played at least a part of mitigating some of this. But what happened in Pennsylvania, it's also happened in Texas and Colorado, is that the oil and gas industry complained to conservative legislatures and all of these states had conservative legislatures saying, you know, it can't be that every time we move to a new town or a new county, we have different regulations for zoning. We need consistent regulations across the board. And all of these states who were very pro-industry went for it. And so they preempted municipalities' ability to control fracking through zoning. And what that meant was in towns, gas wells were allowed in some instances where no other industry was and very close to houses and drinking sources. The more realistic, and I also think, interestingly, this jibes with the more conservative politics that I think a lot of landowners would have accepted. They're anti-regulation, but really it doesn't mean they don't like any kind of restrictions. They're anti-regulations from distant bureaucratic governmental bodies that they feel don't understand the community. So federal and state regulations. But a lot of folks supported zoning. And so people actually did recognize that there should be restrictions on land development in the name of public good of the community. But fracking was like this one exemption because the state preempted it, that this was not a conversation that communities could have had. And I think that that could have mitigated some of the worst impacts. One of the things that was so fascinating is that people showed up to town halls and all of these meetings. Uh, People were very invested, in fact, in their communities, and they couldn't discuss the fracking problem or the fracking question, I should say. They wanted to have a say. And your example of George Hagemeyer was so perfect because suddenly he didn't have any say even on his own property, which is uh, totally perverse. Maybe most disturbing is when they go one step further on state parks in Pennsylvania 
and how basically fracking has induced the de facto privatization of actual commons. Can you define the tragedy of the commons? Yes. So this is a a famous essay written by Garrett Hardin in the late 60s, which was a way to understand so-called resource dilemmas, how individuals make decisions to exploit a resource, even though in the long run, it leads to its degradation and harms everybody. And his analogy that he gives is thinking of the literal commons that existed in England at one time, you know, shared grazing areas, so-called commoners would graze their cattle there. And what he said is, if you make your living off of cattle and you share this pasture with others, it's in your personal interest to introduce as many cattle as you can and have them graze off this field because every cow you add is meat or milk for you or if you sell it for somebody else. But if we all keep introducing cattle, they will overgraze the field and destroy it. And then all of us suffer. And so what he argued is if there aren't external regulations that limit how many cows you can introduce, how much you graze, people will inevitably destroy that resource. Let's just say there's 50 herders. If I say, you know what, I'm not going to add any more cows to the pasture. I'm worried about this field being able to sustain all these cows. If nobody else does what I do, the field is still going to be destroyed. Me choosing not to add more cows is not going to make a difference unless most people choose not to introduce more cows. Even if I don't add more cows out of pure selfishness, I'm still compelled to do it because I realize that me abstaining makes no difference as long as nobody else abstains. And so I might as well get some of the resource while it's still there. Basically, the lack of regulatory involvement in fracking induces a tragedy of the commons. I met so many people said, you know, well, I own two acres, three acres. Yeah, I made some money from leasing. I didn't make life-changing money, but I sat there and I saw that all the big farms around me leased, everybody else leased. And so I realized that it wasn't going to make a difference or not whether I held out. And so I just thought I'm a fool if I hold out. I might as well lease and make some money from doing so. And so that's the tragedy of the commons. And that's how it played out with land leasing. If we go one step further, the state of Pennsylvania basically sold the subsurface rights to energy companies, and they have totally ruined one of the parks, Tyadopton. People used to go hiking there, go fishing there and all this. So can you talk about what you learned in the larger fight against fracking, specifically when it comes to the common good? It wasn't that long ago that there was very strong bipartisan support for fracking. Uh, You know, Obama bragged about how much federal land he opened up for oil and gas drilling. It was actually Ed Rendell, who was a Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, who held the largest auction for state forest land, auctioned off about 150,000 acres, raised over $400 million. So the state got in on the drilling bonanza. Certainly, they were aware of some of the environmental effects, but I think the numbers don't really give a sense of how disruptive it is. So, for instance, Taya Dalton, as you mentioned, I did not expect it to be as much of a loss of experience of the wild and my ability to sort of roam and hike. Because if you look at the numbers, they say that a very small percentage of acres has actually been disturbed, right? So they say, well, we only have a disturbance throughout the entire forest of 2%. So that doesn't sound like a lot. What that means is that tiny little dirt roads are turned into paved highways for trucks, new roads put through forest, gates put across public roads that restrict your access now with private security firms asking for your license, not allowing you to 
go into areas of the forest where legally you are allowed to go, much more of the forest has been lost, if you look at it that way. Lost as a place where people can freely roam and not be restricted in what it is they do, not be surveilled by other people. I was even chased by gas trucks and by security guards who threatened to take away my notepad and my camera. And I should say, I kept checking in with the district forester who worked for the state. And every time he assured me that I should have been allowed free access, it's de facto been privatized because there are private security firms restricting access that make you feel as if you no longer have the ability to be roaming around here, that make you feel like you are not on land that actually legally you are part owner of if you pay taxes as a Pennsylvania resident and these are public forests. And so what I contrast this to is there was this really big controversy at the time. There was another region, a small area called Rock Run, which is a part of Loyal Sox State Forest. And this is a really beloved creek and region, partly because the creek is so beautiful and clear and it's really easy to access. And you can swim or fish in this creek that is one of the purest streams in Pennsylvania. And it was discovered by the Responsible Drilling Alliance and local group and some others that this area was going to be drilled next and that there was going to be 26 well pads put within this area, each one of them being a four to five acre clearance. And then, there, of course, there has to be a whole tangle of pipelines and roads to connect all of these. And so basically the experience of Rock Run was going to be degraded if not taken away. And so there was a huge successful fight. I sort of see this as perhaps the most hopeful story of the book in that the local group responsible during Alliance was really able to get people invested in saying, please not this one special place, right? And so there was a lot of public hearings that attracted people from around the state. They also initiated a lawsuit against the state. They gathered thousands of signatures, which was a lot for such a small state park. The fight is never won entirely. It's not that there's any promise now that drilling won't occur, but they've stopped it from occurring now for a decade. It was eminent in 2012 and it, and it hasn't happened. So now that you've written this book and you've spent this time, what have you learned about social contract theory, being neighborly, about Rousseau and Locke, you know, because they were just theorizing, but you were there and they had a real public-private paradox. In a way, I hesitate to say this because I understand how radical it sounds. I mean, it makes me sound like I'm a communist or something. I think that property rights as they exist in the United States, where they are the most protected, are not actually consistent with social contract theory. They're not actually consistent with democracy, at least in the procedural sense that you and I had discussed earlier, that, that so much of what I do on my property can impact other people if I'm allowed to mine it and do all these other sorts of things. The other thing I would say is that we really haven't thought about how to handle contemporary environmental problems and reconcile them with liberal democracy and contract theory. Today, a lot of these decisions that a lot of us don't even think of as environmental decisions, flicking on a light switch, driving a car, what one eats, the clothes that they buy. If I did it by myself, it doesn't have an impact, but it's the aggregate of millions of people doing it that not only has this big environmental impact, but an environmental impact that can infringe on other people's rights. I don't really know the answer, but we need to think about how modern environmental problems, which are aggregate problems, presents a problem for the way that we've consistently protected individual freedom and private decisions. 
Yeah. So that's my next question. <laughs> you just said you don't have the answers, but, <laughs> uh, but perhaps you have an idea of a beginning of how we can tackle the, this collective action problem and this zero sum game now increasingly when it comes to the environment and resources. So mm -hmm. what are two things I could be doing to mitigate that into the future, especially here in the United States? I would emphasize two things, and one is bottom up and one is top down. I mean, one thing, and you see the Biden administration attempting to do this. So what folks in the administration hope to do is pass a clean energy standard, which will mandate that by 2035, we will not be producing energy from fossil fuels anymore. If you do that, a lot of these other issues have to resolve themselves. I mean to say that like fossil fuel companies can keep fracking for 15 years, but they're going to die after that if they don't start moving away from drilling for oil and gas. And so on the other side, even though I understand that granting greater local control and so-called home rule regarding private property, you know, around issues around fracking, it wouldn't solve all of the big climate change problems. I do think that it would help solve the democracy problem. People, conservatives in particular, but a lot of these folks, they don't like rules if they're not a part in making them, but they're willing to play the game if they play a role in making the rules. And so I think that a lot of folks, if they would have been able to have decision-making power and if they would have seen in the policies to mitigate the worst results of fracking, some of their own ideas, then they would be willing to go along with land restrictions, even in conservative communities where there's ostensibly support for fracking, where there's ostensibly animosity towards regulation of private land use. You see that communities want greater restrictions and they want to be able to control what those restrictions are so that they take into account local concerns and people's capacity to enjoy their own property. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that actually they're totally right. I mean, their instinct is correct, right? It's what mm -hmm. they really want is to have the human aspect incorporated in, in the rules that they are as human beings accounted for, as opposed to somebody pushing papers at a state capital someplace that thinks about it just in theory. So here's my last question. Great. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I have to say... The current presidential administration, Biden has been far more influenced by the progressive wing of the party as far as environmental policy than I expected. I mean, all of his policy is environmental policy. And by the way, also all of his policy seems to be environmental justice policy. I've been quite impressed. I've not seen a presidential administration that took climate change seriously and centered it in most of the things that they did. Related to that, why was Biden and why were politicians more broadly influenced in this way? It's the activism of the youngest adults and even teenagers. I mean, the climate marches that have been going on, a lot of the erosion of bipartisan support for fracking is directly related to how successful the climate movement has been, how many young people have been walking out of school, protesting, forcing adults of my generation and older to take this seriously. And so uh, even though I understand that that response may sound a bit cliche, like I'm hopeful about younger people, but it's about the specific things they're doing, not just that younger people may be able to shake off old ideas. That's well put. I think that's true, that young people are engaged actually in making the change and demanding action for public policy that leads to real decarbonization. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much, Mila. This was a really fantastic conversation. 
Next week on Future Hindsight, we look at the systemic nature of poverty with Mark Rank, co-author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. And we take a deep dive on what's possible to truly solve this problem. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Peter Fedak. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.